Hi, guys. I'm Jason. If you don't know me, uh, I get to do some of the pastoring around here, but I am not the lead pastor. And so if you are visiting, our lead pastor will be back uh, in a couple weeks with uh, kind of a focus on um, spiritual warfare. I don't think you're going to want to miss that. And so um, be sure to come back for that. Um, but to get us started here uh, today, um, have you ever been too busy? Okay. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Are you currently too busy? Okay. Um, I got so busy in the last couple weeks that um, there, was, there was just uh, like a 24-hour period where I went um, to, to men's camp and helped kick off men's camp. It was in YWAM Cimarron, which is two and a half hours that way. I drove up there, hung out for the evening, and drove back home because the very next day, my son turned 18, and on his 18th birthday, we went skydiving in Moab. And so I went from Cimarron to Junction to Moab in a 24-hour period, and then back. And so we were, man, I, was, I felt so busy in that moment. But I want to talk to you guys about the skydiving part. I don't know how many of you guys would go skydiving or have been skydiving. Um, I got to admit, it's amazing. Like, I had the best time. But, and you're going to hate me for this next thing. I never got nervous. I was shocked. I kept expecting to get nervous. Like, um, my son told me when he was 14, he wanted to go skydiving. And I said, well, when you're 18, you're allowed to go skydiving. We'll go on your birthday. And then I forgot about it, right? And then, and then this year, you know, a couple months ago, he's like, so 18's coming. And we booked the trip and I figured, okay, now it's real, right? I'm sure I will start to get nervous. And then I just didn't. I was, I was too busy with life to be nervous. And then as it got closer, I figure, okay, it's, it's going to be more and more real. Eventually, it's going to really start to bother me. But even the day before, I was so busy and so distracted that I, I never had a chance to get nervous. And then that morning, I figured, okay, now this is what we're doing today. Right? And so we're driving down to Moab. I'm expecting to have to encourage my son, and he's going to have to encourage me so that we don't bail and come back home. And you want to know what we talked about on the car ride? That stupid movie called Blue Beetle that's out right now. And we talked about superheroes. We talked about all kinds of, you know, what he's going to do after college, normal things. And then we got there, and then we're standing in a hangar full of people that are coming in. And this is, this is the place where people pee themselves. Right? Like, this is the, you get the, you get strapped in and then you sit there and you wait for your plane to show up. And people are coming in and out that are either about to pee themselves too, or they just went out and, and jumped out of the airplane. And I sat there and I checked my emails. I still had too much on my mind to really think about the fact that I was about to fall to my death. Right? <laughs> I was, I was too distracted. And then we finally, we get up in the plane and, and we, we jump. Now, I want to show you guys a couple pictures because I want to show you what it's about. This is, this is us in the plane. It's a pretty small plane, and we are packed in there, and you're strapped to somebody when you're skydiving. And then they take you up to 13,500 feet, and I want to show you what that looks like from above. This is from Isaiah's point of view. We had a camera strapped to Isaiah, and that is what you see from above. Now notice there's a highway on the left, and that's a car in the bottom, that little white dot down there. Now, 13,500 feet, you jump out of the airplane. 
Now, I was last. So I was the one crammed closest to the pilot. The door is in the back. And so they, they open the door and they say, okay, we're going to start jumping. And that was the weirdest thing to watch people go back to the back of the plane and then, Wah! that's all you can hear at 200 miles an hour, like just, Wah! and they're gone. And sudden, and I mean, it was quick. There was 10 of us or eight of us. And I mean, it went from the first noise to me standing at the door like nothing. And then um, to, to, to do this right, you're strapped to somebody else, which is both ensuring and terrifying at once. You're about to trust your entire life to somebody else. And they tell you, you have to lean your head back and you have to kick your feet back. And the idea is you need to be the, the lowest center of gravity so that you are the one headed down so that we're not tumbling all over the place. And so we get to the edge of the, of the plane. He says, throw your head back. And then we were gone. Have you ever woken yourself up out of bed thinking that you were falling? You know that feeling of like the, all the adrenaline and the confusion and you're, you don't know where you're at for a split second? That is exactly what it felt like for just a split second. And as soon as your body gets used to what you're doing, that is the most exciting 60 seconds you will ever experience. For 60 seconds, for an entire minute, we just fell. No parachute, just us soaring through the air. Here's a, the next picture is also still Isaiah. That's the entire airport below us. And for an entire minute, I mean, temperature is changing. It's cold up there. And you're just, you're going so fast. You're like feeling the degrees change as you get closer to the desert. For one whole minute, my face looked like this. <laughs> for one whole minute, I forgot who I was. I didn't think about anything else. For 60 seconds, I wasn't a dad. I wasn't a husband. I wasn't a pastor. I was just having a good time. For 60 seconds, I wasn't guilty either because I, I hadn't gotten my Bible reading done with my kids for the last three weeks. Or I wasn't anxious about those emails that I had yet to send with people that were waiting on me to get things done. For 60 seconds, I escaped. Now, you may not want to jump out of a plane, but I'll bet you the idea of escape sounds okay. I'll bet you the idea of having some moment that you could be truly free, that you're not burdened by the things that you normally worry about, that you're not distracted by all of the pressures of life. That sounds good. If we could pull the picture down, because that's going to be distracting. <laughs> See, I think that there is somewhere inside of each of us, there is this longing to escape. To get freedom from where you're at in life. Sounds pretty good, right? I think often we are so dissatisfied with where we're at that we start longing to be somewhere else. Just the idea of escape sounds great. And listen, some people take some very real steps to get freedom from where they're at in life. If they're dissatisfied, is it just me or do you guys always think that satisfaction is on the horizon? 
that it's always just around the corner, right? I will put up with where I'm at now because this season is just getting me to the season when I will be satisfied, right? And people take some very real steps thinking that satisfaction is on the horizon, right? I, I know people that have changed jobs, perfectly good job, but they changed jobs because they weren't satisfied. Maybe the next one will do it. Or they get a new house, or they get a new boat, or they get a new wife because they're not satisfied. Satisfaction's always on the horizon, right? I think people take real steps to get free from where they're at. I also think that people take opportunities to escape the moment, too. I think that we do a lot to ignore dissatisfaction in our life. What started with a drink on Fridays becomes a nightly thing, and then pretty soon you need it because it is your favorite part of the day. Or that physical unwind that you felt when you finally gave your, your adult self permission to take a hit, like whenever you were a teenager, and all the pressure just melted. Right? Or you don't open the bills when they come in because opening them means you have to deal with them, and so they pile up in that basket by your back door, which is where I keep them. Or maybe you just stay busy. You don't have to notice how dissatisfied you are if you're busy all the time. See, I think we take opportunities to um, ignore the dissatisfaction that we feel. And we think that the solution to being dissatisfied in our life is to get free from it. That we need delivered from whatever is causing us to be dissatisfied. And culture makes it worse, doesn't it? It doesn't help that culture is constantly telling you that you deserve whatever's on the horizon. And then if there's a group of dissatisfied people, then culture says then there must be some systematic problem that is causing that dissatisfaction. We need to throw off societal norms like marriage and family or like identities of being male or female or roles in your life. That If you're dissatisfied as a group, then society must be broken. Culture is not helping. And so, here's the problem for me. When I'm dissatisfied, when I'm overwhelmed, I want a drink. I don't know about you. Like my, my desire is to go grab a drink and forget about it. Or I want to go put an impromptu vacation on a credit card and just go. I can get in all kinds of trouble when I'm dissatisfied. Or imagine the girl who doesn't like what she sees in the mirror, and then culture tells her that she doesn't have to be who she sees in the mirror, and she makes a decision that changes the entire rest of her life. See, we layer our drive to get free from our life with a culture that's full of ideas, and we have a problem. But it's not a new problem. So that's what I want to talk to you guys about today. This isn't new to 2023. In fact, I would argue that the Ephesians were dealing with very similar problems. And so we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5 today. Um, to get there, though, I'm going I'm to take a little bit of a long route to get us there. Because when I was studying this week, a little window was open to something I had never heard of or thought of before, and as I pushed that window open, I came across something that completely opened my eyes to what this passage that I had read so many times 
could mean. It broadened my understanding of it, and I want to share that with you guys. But to get there, I have to take some, some steps back. How many of you guys like mythology? Oh, more than last night. Last night, they were way more Christian. Like, so... I was, when I was a kid, I loved mythology. I think it's fun, right? There, there's, there, it's so elaborate. There's all these great stories. It feels like children's stories. It feel, it's just so interesting and, and woven together, right? But there is a problem. It's another religion. It's not Jesus, so it might as well be like Harry Potter, right? Like, why is it, why is it that Harry Potter is not okay for Christians, but Star Wars is? You ever thought about that, right? Like, it's the same story, right? You've got, you've got this, this orphan kid who has to live with his uncle, and then a magic wizard comes and shows up and tells him that his real life is somewhere else and that he's going to go solve the world's problems because he's the chosen one. He just needs to hold a stick. It's the same story. Mythology, though, was sort of this, like, no-no for me because it was... It was, it was another religion. So I thought about, as a kid, it was this fun, like, stories. But it was actually somebody else's religion. Like, there were people worshiping the gods of those stories. In fact, there were entire cults built around worshiping specific gods. And sometimes it was related to, like, where you were. Certain areas had certain gods that they worshiped. And sometimes it had to do with your career. If you were involved in a certain thing, you had a god that you worshiped. But there were actual cults with religious beliefs and rituals. And I stumbled onto one this week that I had not heard of. Have you guys heard of a god, a Greek god named Dionysus? Good. You're all smarter than me. I asked last night, I asked one of our teenagers, I said, do, do you know who Dionysus is? And, and she must have had a mythology class. She's like, oh yeah, he's the party god, which is of course the one every teenager remembers, right? But she's right. Dionysus was the god of wine. The, the mythology is that he helped teach the Greeks how to make wine. So then he's the god of, of wine, but also all of the wine grapes, and so they come at a harvest season, and so he becomes the god of fertility as well. So he is the god of wine and fertility. He's the party god, right? And so here's the thing. Um, there was an entire cult built around worshiping Dionysus, and this cult had some kind of um, similar, familiar traits to it. You see, it wasn't just open to everybody. It was, it was a secret society. You had to be initiated into the club. And if you were initiated, um, the process, the, the, the ceremony was elaborate, but it ended with this ceremonial moment where you were said to have been revealed the way to eternal life. So if you're part of the Dionysus cult, if you've been initiated, now you have eternal life offered to you. And then the way that they would actually do their services um, was like a, a party in the woods. I, like, I, we don't have woods here, so we, when I was a kid, we had desert parties. It's like that, but with like real woods. Okay? They would sneak off into the forest and they would party. And there was wine, of course, the god of wine. 
It started with drinking wine, and, and, but they would add music and dancing to it, and they would be dancing so hard and drinking so much that they would get themselves into a trance with their heads going back and forth, and eventually they would work themselves into this ecstatic trance where they were outside of themselves, giggling and full of all of the fun things that you can imagine before the hangover at the best party you've ever been to. And in that moment that they were in this trance filled with wine, it says that they were filled with the spirit of Dionysus. That being drunk and worshiping him allowed you to be filled with his spirit. And it was in those moments that they were full of the spirit of Dionysus where they had all of this joy and this revelry, but they also had freedom it was, there were like no restrictions. They could do whatever they wanted at these parties. And then they were creative too. It was out of this expression of, of fun and celebration that, that we trace the modern movement from theater and movies all the way back to the cult of Dionysus. They were the first ones to put on plays. They were, they were, they were the ones who came up with the theater arts. It was the ultimate good time, the ultimate enlightenment but there's another layer here. You see, that's a Greek cult, and the Greek culture was overran by the Roman government. And the Roman government didn't approve of the cult of Dionysus. And that actually I thought was really weird, because as far as I knew, basically the Romans just inherited all the Greek gods and just changed their names, right? Why wouldn't they like this one? They didn't like this particular cult because the parties that they would have removed all social constraints. If you went to this party married, you weren't married while you were there. If you were a woman and a man and you showed up and there were roles in the Roman culture, when you went there, there were no roles. Everybody could be whatever they wanted. In fact, the leaders had to be from a marginalized part of society. They had to be women or slaves or outlaws to lead. But then, the men and the kings and the people with power, they ended up liking it too. Some of the most famous leaders, Mark Antony, um, Spartacus, Alexander the Great, they were all followers of this cult because they could come and take off their robes and their crown and their authority and just party. They didn't have any responsibility when they were there in the woods. And so you've got this mixture of, if you didn't like where you were at in life, this was sure a fun cult, right? They were sharing lovers, they were cross-dressing, there was homosexuality, there were no restraints. And we know, we know that it was in Ephesus in the same century that this, uh, the, the letter to the Ephesians was written because in 40 BC, Mark Antony arrived on, or to, to Ephesus, and they treated him like he was Dionysus himself. There was a big parade and a festival. Dionysus is here. So we know that it was infused into their culture. That there was this option on the table. There was this religious option on the table. So imagine the pull to this cult. A connection to the divine, the promise of eternal life, you're surrounded by creativity and fun, and then you mix that with freedom from where you were at in life. They could escape. They would just be filled with the spirit of Dionysus. 
That's actually not that far from what our culture offers us now, right? See, your greatest satisfaction is found when you throw off societal norms, you do whatever you feel best, whenever you express the most freedom, and you mix that with some alcohol, some drugs, some sex, and satisfaction is found in freedom from your life. It's pretty similar, right? Now, we spent all of that time on that mythology so that when we get to this passage in Ephesians, it's going to read differently probably than it has read in the past. So let's get into it together. Ephesians chapter 5, and we're in verse 15. It says, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. So he starts this section by saying, you need to look at what's going on here and make a wise decision. You need to see what's out there because the days are evil. What's interesting is actually in in Ephesians, right before this, the conversation was about um, light and darkness. That abominable things happen in the darkness, in the woods, at night, but you should be children of the light. And then he's saying, be wise because the days are evil. The, the environment that you are finding yourself in is evil, and I know it's tempting. See, it was a cult then, and it's culture now. But the call to be wise, to see through the lies and to sort through the voices is the same. And can I remind you that the the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And so he says, if you're going to make a wise choice, you probably ought to figure out what the Lord's will is. Let's keep going. Verse 18, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. This was the rabbit hole that I went down. I started studying this line, and that's what took me that whole route with the Dionysus stuff. But here's the problem. Um, This is actually a bad translation. Like, I'm usually a pretty big fan of us having our, our hands in several different translations. Most of them give us a different angle on the same truth. I don't like the way that this is translated because the words leads to are not in the Greek. See, this gives you the impression that getting drunk leads you to a problem. And in the Greek, it says, do not get drunk with wine. It is. There's no leads to there. That's a bad translation. But also the word debauchery is a bad translation too. Because in the Greek, the word that it is, when you are drunk, it is, is actually the word for waste. It's the thing that gets discarded, the thing that nobody wants. Like, what is your guys' favorite, just really bad for you snack? Mine is Swiss rolls. That's the thing. I got that same answer last night, right? So if I get a package of Swiss rolls, and I don't, it could be eight years old, you know inside it's the exact same, right? (laughs) You get a package of Swiss rolls, you tear open the package, and you eat the part that you want, and then for me, I'm throwing away the wrapper. For you, maybe you're eating the part you want, and you're throwing away the, the Swiss rolls. I don't know. There's a part of that that I wanted, and there's a part of it that's waste. It's useless. It's just in the way. 
It should be in the garbage. That's what this word actually is in the Greek. And so it says, don't get drunk on wine. It's a waste. So this is not saying drinking leads to sin. Because leads to is not in there. It's not even saying drinking is a sin. And if you really want to get picky, it's not even saying getting drunk is a sin. It's saying it's a waste. But that takes on so much more meaning when you step back into that culture with the Dionysus cult. Right? He's saying it is a waste to chase satisfaction trying to be filled with the spirit of Dionysus. It's never going to get you what you think you want. That you want this freedom from your life. You want to escape into this whole other option. And it's a waste. It's not going to fulfill you. You're not going to be satisfied there. And can I tell you that has been true in my life? I don't know what your experience is, but um, the more I chased escape from my life into things like a party in the woods, the less satisfied I became every time. And Paul is saying that is going to be a waste. But then notice what he does here. He, he contrasts that with being filled with the Spirit. I've always thought this was such a weird statement. Why would he say, don't get drunk on wine, be filled with the Spirit? Well, now it makes a lot of sense because drunk on wine is code word for filled with the spirit of Dionysus. He's like, you should be filled with a spirit, but not that one. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, we take chances or opportunities when we get to things like this to stop for a second. Can we talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit? Because if nothing else, I want to take this moment to sort out what it's not. Because there's a lot of confusion around the Holy Spirit. This is not being indwelled with the Holy Spirit. In John 14, Jesus promises that the Spirit will come and dwell in you. Well, that happens to you, and it happens the moment that you're saved. This isn't talking about being sealed with the Holy Spirit like the beginning of Ephesians, because, again, that happens to you. God puts his mark on you so that he can tell who his people are. This isn't even talking about being baptized in the Spirit. Because this is something that you participate in. It says, be filled. The prerogative is on the believer. And so the contrast here is that when you're drunk, you have given away control. Right? I don't know about you, but every time I have had too much to drink, I'm out of control. Right? Like, I've handed control over the smart thing to say to the alcohol, and then the alcohol doesn't understand what smart is. Right? Like I've said some of the dumbest thing. I've done some of the dumbest thing. I, I lose control if I've had too much alcohol. I've given it away. The contrast here is to give control, yield to the Holy Spirit. Let him be in charge of what you do, what you say, what you think. The more you yield, the more you participate in what he's doing through you, the more you are full of the Holy Spirit. And we see descriptions of it other places, like in the book of Acts, Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit and he's able to proclaim God's truth in a moment that he's getting stoned, right? We see incredible things happen when you're full of the Holy Spirit, but it is you yielding to his control that gets you there. And so there's this contrast. He's saying the route to satisfaction in your life is not freedom from where you're at. 
It's found in um, being controlled by the Holy Spirit and being fulfilled. And the whole rest of the passage flows from this. Let's keep reading. Verse 18, again, says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so what's interesting is I've always just read this like it's a list, but again, with the Dionysus cult in the background of their minds, and he's contrasting the two, I think that he's making a comparative list. I think he's saying, you like the theater part, the creativity part. You like all of the songs and the plays. You want to use that creativity. Why don't you use that to encourage each other in the faith? Remind each other of hymns and songs and psalms. And I don't think it's an exclusive couple words. I think the, the purpose there is you can be creative and encourage each other with it. And he says, uh, you, you like the music and the dancing part of it, right? You like the party part of it. What if you used that to praise God? What if you actually put energy and effort and joy into the music part of praising God? says, you want to give credit to Dionysus for fertility? What if we give credit to God for everything that he is due because of Jesus Christ? Let's give credit where it goes. And then he gets down to this final one. Submit to one another. Still in the, um, the way that being filled with the Spirit works itself out, he gets down to this one. And it's like he says, you want to live a life that's all about yourself. And it drives you to grasp at getting freedom from everything that's dissatisfying. What you need is to live a life that's all about others, and it's gonna give you fulfillment in the places that you're at in life. But you don't need freedom from it, you need fulfillment in it, but to do that, it can't be about you. You're gonna find that when it's about somebody else. So you submit to one another. And see, cults then and culture now offers chaos and disruption and selfishness. But God is a God of order and selflessness. And so he says, I know what you're actually after. You're actually after satisfaction and fulfillment. But the way you're going to go get it is a waste. Let me show you another way. And now, when I think about what God would want for us, you can't help but remember that Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's character. How Jesus acted shows us what, Jesus, what God wants for us, right? And what I see when I look at Jesus and I think about that statement, submit to one another, I see that he is always submitted to the will and the leadership of his Father. You realize that Jesus... God on earth could do whatever he wanted to, and he chose always to make sure that he was in line with his father. And I also see that he always had other people's best interest in mind. You realize that the God of the universe was born on this earth in the dirt to live a life in a tent, roaming around the wilderness with a group of sweaty guys so that one day he could be so persecuted that he's nailed to a cross. 
he probably could have decided he would rather live a different life. But he did everything he did for other people, you and me included. He put other people's best interests in mind. And so what I think Paul gets to here is he realizes this statement, submit to one another, is actually at the heart of the problem. Because what we want is we want to escape our life, which is a very selfish, self-motivated thing, and he's calling us to be selfless. And so what he does here is he double-clicks on this statement, submit to one another. He zooms in a little bit, and he's going to talk about three different relationships. And you know what's interesting? He talks about wives and husbands, children and their parents, and slaves and their masters. Three relationships with marginalized people involved and with somebody that has power involved. Speaking into a culture that has the option to run off into the woods and completely disregard all social constraints, that you could be free from that life if you want to. But we know that's a waste. And I think he intentionally chooses those relationships to talk about in the context of submitting to one another, in the context of selflessness. And so, what we're going to do for the rest of our time here is I'm going to show you the rest of the passage based on this statement, submit to one another. But I'm not going to get to all three relationships. We're just going to start with the first one today. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read the whole rest of the chapter as one block, and then we're going to talk about it. Right after this, verse 21 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and they care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That's a quote from Genesis. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Okay, so, isn't it cool that we're in 2023 and culture has helped us figure all this out? We don't need to really... Exactly. I also think it's funny that I'm the one who has to do this talk. 
for a moment, I'm going to walk us through something that probably deserves a much longer conversation, but I'm going to try to make it as simple as possible to keep it in the context of what Paul is talking about. Remember that he starts this section with this call. If you're going to live a life filled with the Spirit, you need to submit to one another. You need to put other people's um, uh, good ahead of yours. You need to be selfless. You need to think about them. That's where satisfaction is going to be found. Tells us that up front. And then he says, now we've got some relationships. He starts with the marriage relationship. Let me show you how that works itself out. Now what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to work backwards in this text. Did you notice that he start? Well, I said backwards and I'm going to start at the beginning. Sorry. We're going to jump around. That's what I meant. Okay, so notice that he starts with this idea of submitting to one another, and he says, we're going to separate this into two categories, women and men. No, that isn't what he said. He didn't say, we're going to talk about women and men and how they submit to one another. We're going to talk more specifically about wives and husbands. Can we be really, really clear for a second? There has been a lot of misuse of passages like this to talk into culture about the role of women and men, and it was never about the roles of women and men. It was about the marriage relationship at home. And the abuses that have happened on that um, conversation have caused us to get uncomfortable around what it's actually talking about. So for a moment, let's all be on the same page, wives and husbands. He says, you are called to submit to one another, wives and husbands. But notice at the end of this passage, it tells wives, you should respect your husband. And husbands, you should love your wife. Did you catch that at the end that it gets down to this point where it sort of sums it all up? Husbands love your wives. Wives respect your husbands. Why would it say that? The same answer from last night because it's hard. <laughs> like, like I, you're right. The Bible is full of things that are just clear when it's hard. Sometimes it's like we just need that clarity. It's hard. But I think there's another layer there too. The author of the book, Love and Respect, says that it's like we have a mother tongue, a native language that is built into us. The, the way that God designed us to receive appreciation and value from other people, and yet it's different for men and women. It's not that we both don't need both love and respect, but there is a native language with which we receive appreciation and value from other people. And they're different. And see, a man that is respected has a deep sense of worth, even deeper than a man that is loved. I'll show you what I mean. Think about a father-son relationship. Now listen, boys need to be loved, and they need to be told that they're loved. But when my dad 
has told me throughout my life that I'm loved, that he loves me, to be honest with you, it's awkward. <laughs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> but whenever he comes to me and asks my opinion about something that matters in his life, or whenever he tells me that he is proud of me, that means something. That touches a part of me that doesn't get through with the words, I love you, from my dad. And I see the exact same things with my kids. I've got three boys, and Noah, um, he, one day he impressed me with uh, his knowledge about a car. It was like a, like a turbo eclipse from the 90s, and he knew things about it or something. And I was like, wow, teach me what you learn. And just that little investment of me being impressed and proud of him. Year after year, he has learned more and more about cars. I think he's going to be a car guy the whole rest of it. It may be his career path because I was impressed. I was proud. My son Joseph, whenever he was much younger, he didn't play with Legos. He played with Bionicles, which are like Legos, but you can, they move. You can do things. You can make robots shapes and stuff with them. And he was un canny good at it. Like he had a knack for like symmetry and making like transformers out of these. I was, I, there was no way I was going to do that. And the first time I told him that, man, I mean, for years, every time I come home, he'd have another one. He'd be showing, look what this one does, dad. And he wasn't asking me, do you love me? He was asking me, do you respect this? Are you proud? Are you impressed? Men speak the language of respect inherently. And I think that women inherently speak the language of love. And when I say love, the problem is that's such a broad term. I think if we zoom in a little bit to intentional care, love that shows itself in intention, the reason I think that's true, I know enough women in my life that I have seen a phenomenon that would never happen among men. <laughs> the moment that I see women light up the most is when their friend was paying attention enough to remember their favorite order at Starbucks and bring it to them without being asked. Right? Like, if you're out shopping with your girlfriend's window shopping and you point out something, and then when it's your birthday six months later, and the friend who was with you shows up with that thing, and they were intentional, they paid it, they noticed, they cared, that strikes at a woman's sense of worth. Right? Or whenever somebody notices that, that you're overwhelmed and they just bring dinner. Right? Or they want to come over and help with something or take care of whatever is burdening you. It's when somebody notices and does something, when there is action behind, there's intention behind attention, it's loving. Now, this doesn't mean that men don't need loved or that women don't need respected. Let's be clear. Both are true. But there is this native language of love and respect. And a good way to prove this is to think about what happens when we don't get it, right? I am way more upset when I am disrespected than when somebody didn't think of me. But when I, a lot of the women in my life are really upset when they are not thought of, when they're not noticed, when there's no intention, 
when you don't get it is a good litmus test of whether or not it is true. And I'm sure we're all wired a little bit differently. We've got more respect, more love. But conceptually, it breaks down pretty well across the gender lines. But there's a problem. If men speak the language of respect and, and women speak the language of love, and then you layer on top of that our selfishness, men are naturally bad at loving. And women are naturally bad at respecting. In fact, that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Right? I see that even in the story in the garden. In fact, if you were here a couple years ago, we did a series called Dragons, and I talked on just the guy's side of this, on passive men, and you would be shocked at how many phone calls and emails I got from women. That is exactly what my husband needed to hear. Right? That is, you'd be, it was, it was like, I hope my husband was there. I hope he was listening. All the way back in the garden, we see Adam step back into the shadows in a very important moment. And instead of being intentional and protecting his wife and leading her toward her good, he stepped out of that role. And then we see Eve step into the vacuum and assume that leadership. And so he didn't love her enough to protect her, and she didn't respect him enough. She stepped in front. And all the way back then and from then until now, Men have been bad at loving and women have been bad at respecting. And it's not, it's not that it's not overcomable, but that is our starting point. And I think that's the reason Paul points it out. So the question then is, how do we go from submitting one another, putting other people's best interest in mind, to here, knowing that my wife's best interest is loving her, or your husband's best interest is respecting him? How do we get there? That's what the rest of this passage is. That's what all the stuff in the middle was about. And I'm going to boil it down to something that is almost too simple, okay? It says, wives, submit to your husbands as you would submit to the Lord. As the, the church submits to Jesus, it's not that Jesus doesn't ever give the church any uh, autonomy to make decisions, but there are moments when Jesus gets to decide the direction that we are going, and we fall behind that. And so can we just make this into a, an attitude where it says, his leadership wins. And I intentionally chose those words because I want to point out it doesn't mean that a woman can't have any leadership doesn't mean that wives don't have leadership in the home. Of course they do. My wife is way smarter than me. She has really great ideas, right? A lot of mine are bad, but there is a point when if we have spent time trying to, to reconcile and get on the same page, if we aren't on the same page, somebody's leadership has to win. And God predetermined that it would be the husband's leadership that wins. But whenever a wife submits to that leadership, she is showing him that she trusts him, that she respects him. It's about the language more than the action. It's about showing him respect. That's just the how we get to the respect part. And the same thing is true on the other side. We're still called men to submit 
to one another. We submit to our wives. But notice the calling is wired differently. It says, husbands, love your wives the way that Christ loved the church. He gave himself for the church. Think about what Jesus did for us. Dying. Literally giving up hopes, ambitions, dreams, the end of his life for the good of the church, right? For her good, for her glory, that her uh, existence would be better, that she would be better for it. And so if we're talking about attitudes, how does a husband get to the point that he loves his wife with an attitude that says her good wins? That my job as a husband is to make decisions that are better for her than anybody else. Even me. That her good would win even above mine. That I would sacrifice for her. Which might mean sacrificing your passivity for her good. It might mean challenging her Opinions every once in a while for her good. And yet, in the end, that is the intention and attention that will show her that she's loved. If not, we go all the way back to the garden again and we start having a conversation about passive men and the women who hate them for it. And so... This is how we submit to one another in the marriage relationship with each other's most basic needs in mind. It is not about what you give up. It is about what you give away. And this is so countercultural, right? And it, it was countercultural then, too. The difference was, in a Roman culture, how crazy it was to ask the husband to do anything that wasn't for his own good. Because... What Paul is saying is that you're going to find the most satisfaction whenever the focus isn't on you anyways. If your goal is to be satisfied. And so in a culture where freedom from their place in life was on the table, Paul tells them that's not going to bring you satisfaction. You need fulfillment in the places that you find yourself in life. And so I'm going to leave this up on the screen. That fulfillment in is greater than freedom from. Fulfillment in your life is better than freedom from it. And I think it's important for us to ask, why am I always trying to get freedom from the things that I'm not satisfied in instead of looking for fulfillment in them? And just like the Ephesians 2,000 years ago, there's a pull in our culture to throw off the constraints and to live as wild and free as we want to. And just like then, I think God is offering a better way to satisfaction. Fulfillment in is greater than freedom from, but that is only possible in a life that is filled with the Spirit. See, this all flowed from that statement. Don't be filled with that Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. A life filled with the Spirit is one wherever we invite God's control. And you can't invite God's control if you're focused on what you need to escape from all the time. You have to let go. So as we close here today, my hope is that you will invite God to be in charge of your life and that you will look for opportunities to put other people first. And my guess is that you will find more and more satisfaction. Let me pray for you. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your truth in Ephesians. We thank you for um, hard but high challenging callings that are good for the people around us. And we're so grateful that you've wired it in a way that it ends up being good for us too. Thank you. Help us to accomplish your will in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.